This week we are talking about the post-COVID Latin American economy. Now, why are we? Well, this particular economic zone has faced unprecedented economic decline because of the pandemic. And now, of course, all economies are suffering, as we all know, from the pandemic. People are losing jobs everywhere, and it's not exclusive to any region. But, but what makes this region special? Well, there's two reasons. Firstly, the entire region is a developing economy. And secondly, nearly half of the entire region's GDP is made up of mining activities. And mining activities are extremely limited at the moment and will be for the foreseeable future because, of course, of social distancing and because of coronavirus restrictions. Now, a third reason why it makes this region special is because for the past 10 years, the region has faced limited economic growth and what has a limited fiscal policy. Now, what this all adds up to is economic downturn. Um, now, we're joined by DS, an economic student at Emory University in the United States, as well as Sophia Chang, as you all know, Sophia, the co-host of This Week and fellow co-founder of, of course, MUN Line, as well as Riley, uh, the producer of This Week, as well as fellow co-founder of MUN Line. Thank you all for being here. Now, I suppose we'll start with uh, DS, of course, your economics student at Emory University. What's your general outlook on when we talk about the economic effects of Latin America in particular? And, and what, what makes that region special? We talk about the effects COVID-19 has on that particular region. Well, the economies of Latin America, um, as you mentioned, are largely dependent on mining and not just mining, but mostly an export based economy, mining, precious minerals, oil, and for Brazil, very important agriculture. What coronavirus has basically imposed on the global economy is a global demand shock in that basically all these supply lines are being very, very unprofitable for these countries because no one is there to demand them. For Brazil, for example, their largest exporter market is China, and it's mostly for fruits, vegetables, and whatnot. When we see these economies shrink in these foreign countries that consume their products, we see an also a shrinkage of the Latin American economy. It's also very important to note that before this crisis even hit, Latin America was very much declining in growth due to a large number of reasons. And right now, this is a very, very poor time for Latin America to be seeing this recession because we have very far right governments trying to roll back some of the social welfare state of Latin America's people. And there was a report that came out very recently that as a combination of coronavirus and the lack of a welfare state in many of these Latin American countries, that we're going to see one of the greatest fallbacks in the poverty that we've seen in Latin America. Over the last two decades, Latin America has seen a very great anti-poverty program overall, but it seems like a lot of that progress can be undone very quickly. And when we, you mentioned sort of the, a lot of the politicians, I think the most known, at least in Ireland, as well as in the United States, would be Jair Bolsonaro, the Trump of the site. And when we talk about Brazil specifically, how do you feel that Jair Bolsonaro has really contributed more than maybe other administrations in Latin America towards these sort of economic impacts that we're seeing in Latin America? Like how has his administration increased the economic impact? You talk about this social welfare state, obviously he's rolled back on that. How do you think that played a role? As we should also know with Yarbo Sonalero, he is kind of different from Trump in that Trump was elected mostly through a democratic process. Whereas in Brazil, I think many would contend that his political imprisonment of the opposition, Lula da Silva, was mostly an unfair tactic and he was unfairly elected. So with that in mind, we should understand that Jair Bolsonaro doesn't necessarily have the popular broad support that we may see Trump having. Nevertheless, his influence on the Brazilian economy has basically been that of defunding research institutions in Brazil, defunding 
the social security state, as I said, and also generally propagating a very similar kind of rhetoric that Trump is spreading. He has many people in his administration that are very much anti-science. There's a good number of flat earthers, in fact, within his administration. And you can see him propagating the same kind of anti-scientific myths that Trump has been propagating early on in his administration, maybe even to a larger extent. And because of that message, which is so ingrained in the Brazilian media because of his very eccentric personality, we've seen that the people have kind of taken this on. And this coronavirus pandemic has only worsened in Brazil as a result of his lack of policy against it and the general consensus among the people that this may not even be real. Well, that's like in April. He was actually, so Bolsonaro was asked by reporters, like, what, what is he going to do about the rising um, COVID cases in Brazil? And he was like, so what? Like, what do you want me to do about it? And you're like, it'll be interesting. Like, as you said, he probably didn't get elected in the most fair way. You, Diaz, you'll probably know a lot better than I will, but you've seen a lot across the world, like countries that are showing leadership in this and countries that are falling back. And it'll be interesting to see how Brazil goes post-COVID because like under Bolsonaro's leadership, pending he even survives COVID because he's he's currently positive to it, isn't he? Like, is that leadership going to affect him not just in a domestic scale, but on an international scale as well? Because I know he wasn't already on great standing with a lot of people. Is that lack of leadership around COVID going to affect that even more? I think that lack of leadership will kind of make foreign investors very wary because what we've seen is like a very, very large failure of supply lines all across the world. But Bolsonaro's inability to address how to recuperate that and institute some sort of alternative state of an economy while this pandemic rages on, it's mostly been a failure. Within Brazil and one of the other largest economies within Latin America, Mexico, there's a very prominent role of the informal sector. Basically, jobs, businesses, and economic activity that cannot be taxed and is not monitored on the government. Think of your street vendors or people that you see as a tourist, things like that, unregulated businesses. And as Brazil grows, it seems like this informal sector is also growing for a large number of reasons due to an unfair tax structure that is very, very complex. You'll find a lot of investors saying that Brazil has one of the most complicated tax systems around the world. And because of a general lack of trust within the government to actually pay out those benefits and support them in these legal jobs. I think after this epidemic, you may see a large growth in the informal sector as people are dropping out of the formal sector and finding out they can make a pretty good wage in the informal sector as well. And it's not helping that Brazil isn't trying to maintain some sort of sustainability within its economy. Although they're a largely agricultural business economy, they haven't had any sort of internal infrastructure development after Bolsonaro has been elected president that basically would allow them to ship food inwards within their country to allow for people to not go hungry and to have some sort of food security, which is very important for any nation. Uh, you mentioned so mainly the Brazilian economy is made up of agriculture, and this kind of goes to say for the rest of the, the economies of Latin America, of course, it's mainly split between agriculture and mining activities. Now, some would say that this time of economic collapse would actually, where money is quite cheap, and uh, where you could literally get uh, money, at least in the European Union, at least, out of 
countries are utilizing this time to invest in massive amounts of infrastructure because the ECB is basically buying any government debt. Now, I don't know if you can say the same for Latin America. However, I think this is a time that maybe the likes of Brazil and other economies within the Latin America, the greater Latin American economy, sort of utilize this time to diversify their economies, looking more into green uh, sector because some would say a lot of the reasons why of course you've mentioned yes that the economies haven't been have been quite sluggish and because a lot of vendors a lot of informalities within a lot of uh, unfair tax systems but as well as that it's a large sector is made up of agriculture and mining so do you think this is a time that governments should be and the latin american economy should be taking to diversify their economies I mean, I would say absolutely. Uh, it may not be very easy for them to do that, however. A lot of these countries are racking up debts and deficits that they're not exactly in a position to pay off. We recently saw Chile ask for um, a bailout from the IMF. And although Chile has been kinder to the IMF and other international development organizations and may actually get that, we've seen a lot of these countries leave what we now know as the Washington Consensus, which is this general plan for Latin American countries to develop along the lines of fiscal conservatism and foreign investment and a strong global investment. In Bolivia, for example, the presidency of Evo Morales meant a large, large deliberalization of their economy in order to build up that welfare state. And although he's out of power now, many other Latin American countries are in the same boat. They've defied what these international development organizations have told them in order to grow their own economy and build more sustainable economies. However, in this time of economic stress, it may be very difficult for them to actually do that diversification. They can't rely on money from the outside and financial investors have been looking at these economies and saying, we don't want to invest them anymore. We saw a huge drop in the value of the peso by I think about 20% earlier this year at the start of this pandemic. So I think although it is a very important time to diversify its economy, there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope for that. Yes, it does seem quite challenging. Um, I think when you mentioned about this, the welfare problems that starting amid sort of, the, sort of the fiscal squeeze, as we call it, there's four sets of problems related to social protection systems. And I think this is really what makes it up uh, the, the lack of rigid social protection systems that we see in Europe as well as other developed countries. So sort of high rates of informality, kind of increased self-employment and gaps in access to contributory social protection. So then you mentioned about vendors and generally unrela- unregulated sectors. And a few countries, of course, have unemployment benefits, contributory social protection systems sort of will be financially affected by higher demand for sick leave benefits by sort of formal sector workers and there is a lack of tax funded and non-contributing social protection programs that's that will kind of support the poorest and a need to be extended to lower income families at risk do you think then because the latin american economy it's run by arguably a, a right-wing tyranny as we mentioned yeah bolsonaro do you really think instead of looking for economic change we should be looking for political change for the record though Venezuela's inflation has actually reduced under COVID situation, which has been really, really interesting to see. Like it was just climbing, 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 and it's actually finally reduced for the first time in several years, just because they've been taking money back out of the system. And like the main issue with Venezuela, as far as I'm aware, um, Diaz, please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not an econ major. The main reason that they had issues with inflation in Venezuela was that they were just putting too much 
printed money in. They were just raising wages, raising wages. They weren't doing kind of anything. I think Venezuela is a very difficult situation. It's not one that I would look to for political change in Latin America. I just think with the whole two president situation, like Maduro has done so much to solidify himself as like what they would consider the legitimate president based on like his military support, like Juan Guaido, no matter how much he does to get support from international players, he never has been able to get the military. And I think that's something he's going to have to get before we see any change in Venezuela. If you look at other places as well, like a lot of them are having political change. Well, they were before COVID. Like I'm pretty sure Chile or Peru have both been having like trying pushes towards democracy or more democratic kind of processes in the past several years. Of course, that's been cut short with COVID, but you're, I reckon we'll see after the pandemic settles down a bit more, those kind of processes will come back because people, they're not going to like recover economically quite well, which will make people angry, make people want change. It's the same thing that we kind of see. We see massive reforms after massive incidents like this to try and mitigate that or because people are so angry about what's happened, the way and how the systems were that caused it, that they'll do their best to change it. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you, you talk about Chile there for a second. Uh, of course, as we all know, the president of Chile, uh, of Chile, Sebastian Panera, you know, is one of the richest men in Latin America, a Chilean billionaire, businessman. And he's been president since 2018. Now, we look at Chile, uh, compare comparative to sort of Brazil and other places in Latin America. Um, the, the social inequalities are probably not as apparent as we look at as uh, sort of Mexico, Brazil. And now, why why is this? Well, I think what Latin America has really been struggling to do is to set a set a concrete uh, social policy. Something interesting, actually, that I find is that, you know, in light of the recent coronavirus crisis, Chile actually offered to rewrite its constitution in order to make it more favorable towards its citizens. And, you know, a lot of the things that we've been seeing happening in Latin America is that the presidents that have been decisive and fast in reacting to COVID, their popularity ratings have increased. And of course, you know, we're going to see that decrease as COVID really hits the economy and they have to deal with economic losses. But it's really interesting to me that the people have been more in favor of their presidents. And, you know, a lot of people call Latin America a region of militarized democracies. But it's really interesting that a lot of those folks have been more favorable towards their presidents due to that change. And I'm wondering if in the future, we're really going to see a shift towards anti-establishment candidates on account of the facts that while some of these governments have done extraordinarily well in containing the virus, you know, Chile um, and Uruguay have been great for COVID containment. Other countries have been quite lacking in that area. And I'm wondering if we're going to see anti-establishment movements in that area, especially as democratic accountability mechanisms, you know, like student mobilizations and elections are coming up um, in these few years. Do you guys think that we're going to see a shift towards more democratic ideals because of the holes in the economy that COVID has poked in these countries? Can we necessarily like democratic? I think there will be a lot of political change. I don't know specifically if it will be democratic or if it will swing back to the right as well. 
Yeah, I would like to concur with that as well. We've seen, like I said, uh, a large swing to the right already in uh, a lot of these countries' governments. But um, Matthew pointed out the example of Chile, which is, has, I think, the highest per capita income of Latin American countries. And although that is true and it's seen uh, great anti-poverty programs, that doesn't mean that inequality hasn't grown. Inequality in Chile is actually one of the highest in the world. And although the people have seen large jumps in their wages, most of the productivity that has been gained in their development has gone to the richest. Uh, last year and around November, I believe, we saw these huge protests in Chile asking for an expansion of their welfare state. And although those protests have died down in light of the coronavirus epidemic, I believe those tensions are still there. I think a lot of these leaders are looking at Chile and also Peru, which is also at protest, and thinking about how they can further consolidate their power and resist these movements. In Brazil, the military has a very large stake in the welfare of the state. Uh, when Jair Bolsonaro rolled back the, well the pension fund um, on Brazilian citizens, he increased spending on pension funds for military servicemen. So. In that sense, the military is as big of a lobby as it can be in Brazil, and in other Latin American countries, that's the same thing as well. These armed groups that are apparatuses of the state, I think, will have a larger play in what comes after coronavirus in terms of social change, rather than these organized movements. Because in all honesty, although people like to point at Bolivia and say, look how Evo Morales became president, it was a largely ground up labor movement. That is the exception to the rule when it comes to Latin America. Um, I just want to say for the record, um, this Washington Post article from July 22nd this year, so 2020, says that 96% of Venezuela's population is currently in deep poverty. So I don't know how much worse it can get from there, really. You know, a lot of Latin American folks are going to be forced into poverty because of coronavirus. I think some estimate put it at 30 million people. But I was wondering how you guys see the Latin American economy recovering. You know, obviously, it's not going to be a perfect V-shape. But do you think that mass debt cancellation or huge relief packages from the IMF is the way to go? Because obviously, China is struggling with its own uh, financial crisis right now and trying to keep its economy afloat. And it doesn't have time to save Latin America. So do you guys see Latin America recovering on its own through, you know, huge changes? And I think that it will definitely have to be these uh, large international development organizations like the IMF, which has paid particular attention to these countries. However, like I said earlier, I think that there will be a little bit of a stipulation when it comes to that recovery, which will be generally follow, going back to the Washington consensus, going back to an economic liberalization, large movements in the financial sector towards the Latin American economy. And I think there's two ways that they could go about it, either an increasing or decreasing reliance on commodities being a large part of their economy. Most of Latin America's growth that we've seen in the last decade, especially in the early 2000s, was because of the commodity boom of consumer markets like China, as you mentioned. For immediate economic relief, it's going to have to rely on these organizations. However, in the long term, as long as these consumer markets overseas do recover back up to a semblance of what they were in the first place, I think in the long run, you'll see the Latin American economy stay afloat. Something I think that will affect the economy in those areas, I reckon there's going to be a lot of migration after this where, as to where they go that will be it would depend i guess on the areas i know a lot there 
Colombia is having a lot of issues with Venezuelan refugees trying to get back into Venezuela because they're finding, so obviously like refugees have fled Venezuela because of the political crisis, the economic crisis there as well. But there's an article from The Guardian from the 4th of July, so a couple of weeks ago now, but um, like people from Venezuelan refugees that are in refugee camps in Colombia are actually desperately trying to get back into Venezuela. I guess they're like, they, they're finding, they're fleeing these places thinking that they're going to get a better life. They're realizing with COVID and that that's not probably going to happen. So they're actually trying to go back. I guess sometimes it's better to die in their own house. So I wonder if we'll see more, say, migration up through Mexico into the US, if we'll see like movement around the Latin American countries just because people are just going to be in poverty and they're going to be desperate to move. And it'll be interesting to see how other aspects, like other parts of the world react to that too. This week is a podcast by MUNLINE, an enterprise that hosts online Model UN conferences and creates educational content for future leaders. Sophia, why do you like MUNLINE? Well, I love MUNLINE because the platform that we're hosting it on is a lot easier to maneuver around in than other competing companies that, you know, also host online debates. I think that the format that we're using and the rules of procedure that we're utilizing are a lot easier to understand and a lot more friendly to beginner delegates who just want to learn how to, you know, structure arguments or research or get the feel of what Model UN is like. Why do you like Model UN though? Specifically MUN Line. Well, Sophia, the reason why I like MUN Line is because we use custom delegate software. We don't use Zoom. Zoom is annoying. I've used Zoom for school. It, it's irritating to use. We don't like it. That's why we don't use it at MUN Line. We have our own cost uh, software for everything. It's this good sense of community. We unite delegates around the world through Model United Nations, and we pre- prepare individuals to become future leaders in which they are destined to become. It is accessible. MUN Line replicates all of the benefits of MUN in-person conferences, such as the social element, debate structure into an online forum that makes it accessible and valuable for all. Visit MUNLine.org to join. Well, I guess we've been talking about a lot of the the, the present economic challenges, but so if you go down to the fundamentals now, there's a, a phrase coined by a Harvard Business School professor. It's, it's called institutional voids, and it's basically a phrase that's coined by this business teacher in the in, in Harvard Business School, and refers to the absence of intermediaries like market research firms, uh, the absence of credit card systems to efficiently connect buyers and sellers, and it also plays a foundation in the level of trust in these economies between buyers and sellers and there are no systems to connect buyers and, and sellers so i believe you gave the example of of an ambulance if you if you call an ambulance in rio de janeiro the time it takes for that ambulance to get there can actually be a metric by which you can rate and judge the success of economy and the ability of economy to allow entrepreneurship to thrive in the economy now, I was wondering, DS, have you heard of this phrase or does it sound familiar to you? Because it is something that I read quite recently and I think it was quite interesting as that it's a sort of a fundamental that has to be in order for entrepreneurship and, and sort of these, Amer- these 
economies to thrive, especially economies that face problems in trust and transparency uh, between the seller of a service and the buyer. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard of that phrase in particular, but it does fall in line with what we conventionally know about Latin American economies, which is that I think around 55% of people in Latin America doesn't have a bank account. Most transactions are handled in cash. It is largely cash-based economy. And to have financial institutions easing this gap so that consumer spending within the country can increase will be very important moving forward. In Bolivia, before the current president was basically um, installed through a coup, uh, Lula da Silva and part of his growth in the early 2000s instituted a very extensive credit line towards the Bolivian people in order to, for them to increase consumer spending, which allowed them to grow their domestic economy as the surplus from their export economy brought them a lot of growth in general. I think moving forward, you may see a, an adoption of digital payments, not just like credit cards, but even skipping a beat towards things like similar to Apple Pay, PayPal, and things like that, mostly decentralized forms of payment that are not necessarily in line with our conventional hallmarks like Visa, MasterCard, and stuff like that. Yeah, I understand that. I think that is where institutional voidism comes to play, uh, but it's all more kind of the what needs to be there and prerequisites in order for sort of entrepreneurship and proper entrepreneurship to prosper and help the economy. Now, we were mm-hmm. talking about earlier about businesses, especially in Latin America, that are not regulated and they think we, that they're not taxed, they don't contribute towards the tax system. We're talking about new vendors on the street. Do you think, now this might sound a bit controversial, but do you think the government should be coming in and closing all of those doors? Now, there will be mass unemployment. However, do you not think that might be an opportunity for those economies to allow MNCs open their doors or to really push and I, the unemployment levels caused by essentially banning all vendors and businesses that don't ab- abide by the region's tax code? to just shut their doors and create this need for whether that might be foreign business or entrepreneurship within Latin America to come to play and essentially save it. Because that seems to be the problem for a lot of this. We talk about financial literacy, the lack thereof, and it comes back to sort of deregulation and a lot of unregulated businesses within Latin America. I think there's an argument to be made that those kind of street vendors are entrepreneurship in a way because they're not the traditional startup that you see in the Western kind of sphere. But I mean, they're making money from pretty much nothing. So I would say that they are still entrepreneurs in their own way. And these countries are so reliant on these kind of systems. I think if you shuttered them all up, you'd smash the economy far worse than COVID would. I'd agree completely. I think that to formalize these economies, to get these people participating in taxes and debt metrics and things like that, it's going to require a carrot rather than a stick in order to push them towards that. One of the biggest reasons that, like I said in Brazil, that these people don't participate in formal sectors is because the complications of the tax system, which not only makes it hard for native Brazilians to engage in the formal economy as a business owner, but also foreign companies as well. So I think building up a simplicity of a tax system maybe benefits for legitimizing your business and also building up the possibility of infrastructure for these vendors, giving them a storefront, giving them land in order to develop will be a very big part in making sure that they're engaged in the actual economy. I think closing them down would send a huge shock throughout these economies overall. And I think a better way to go about this problem is to transition rather than just force it out. 
what do you think needs to be in place in order for that transition to happen? Because some would argue now, because uh, I think we've touched upon this already, so I don't want to go back to it. However, a lot of the administrations we've talked about, yeah, Bolsonaro, we've talked about the, the Chilean president. What really needs to be in place for this transition to happen? And that and is really fundamental to when we talk about post-COVID Latin American economy is that this is an opportunity for a transition towards a more adaptable economy and economy that is more, I guess, approachable by small businesses that make up, of course, the foundation of economy. So what, what really needs to be in place for this transition to happen? Yeah, I think that one of the things that we need to do in order to see the Latin American economy uh, in the future flourish is help these governments with their fiscal space because in the status quo, they have a lot of debt and that prevents them from being flexible with programs that could possibly help the poor and help people in the informal sector, which as we mentioned earlier, makes up around half of the economy or, or half of jobs, which is incredible to see because a lot of these people are losing jobs, oil prices are falling, um, they're not able to keep up with their bills. And we need to have the governments of Latin America be able to maneuver quickly in order to react to this uh, in the future. These economies obviously are quite fragile right now. And I'd like to see them be able to react to anything and you know, protect the poor and prevent a lot of people from falling into poverty. The other thing we need to consider as well is that like, you can say like the governments can be given this assistance, that's fine. But if it's not implemented by the people on the ground, it's not going to do as much. Like you'll notice with Peru, it had one of the most like restrictive lockdowns. It was one of the first Latin American countries to go into lockdown. And because they had that lockdown for so long, people just got sick of it. And then they just started doing their day-to-day -day activities again. And then Peru just shut up into like into the top of their COVID cases. Like there, I think there's six in the world as of this morning with cases. Not a lot of deaths, thankfully, but a lot of actual cases. And it shows when you want to look at these kind of top-down economic practices, you need to make sure that they're actually able to be implemented by the people on the ground as well, or if they're going to actually want to be able to do that sort of thing. Because if they aren't, then it's just going to be useless. I think in addition to what Riley and Sophia said, in regards to frustration, just the lockdown itself, I think to formalize its economy, there's a lot of frustration that needs to be dealt with on frustration with institutions. In Latin America, corruption is still a very large issue, even in countries that we like to consider very developed, such as Mexico. For example, its recent coronavirus benefits program was administered largely through the Electra Bank which is owned by the nation's second richest person, Salinas Pliego. And the Electric Group has a very bad history with the Mexican government. And a lot of former Electric Group administration and officials are now within the Mexican government. And in general, from the top to the bottom, people don't trust these governments to handle their money well. And honestly, to survive as a business owner, you may need to grease some wheels in the forms of bribes or just general lack of formal regulation, I guess, of these things. I think a large anti-corruption program would go a long way towards helping people feel safe and going back to the formal economy. And in addition to that, I think a large reason that you have seen this corruption is because foreign investment in this country has needed a mediator between itself and the government. And that's what these groups largely take after. So making sure that foreign investments go directly to the government 
and to these economies rather than having this mediator will be very important. I think we definitely talk about China because historically we've seen China take advantage of areas whenever they're in economic decline because that's what China likes to do. They like to come in, they, they give like to give a helping hand with the likes of infrastructure. Uh, we've seen this in even in, in Australia, I believe. Finally, even in the likes of Victoria with ports, they really drive areas into debt and they take advantage of it with like ports in Sri Lanka. Uh, so do you think that's an area we could talk about? Yeah, the Belt and Road Initiative is China's effort to basically, co- not coerce, I guess, but incentivize deficit spending in these countries towards infrastructure that would benefit Chinese trade. I don't know the extent which that initiative will reach Latin America, even as its economy declines, because most of this is focused in the South China Sea, the Pacific Ocean, Indian Ocean. I guess that I could see a world where as this initiative grows, And in Mexico right now, we're actually seeing the construction of a canal that the tout will be similar to the Panama Canal, which would be interesting to see. But I think, I guess far in the future, the rise of China continues to basically grow. We could see Chinese investment in export infrastructure as well, because they're so reliant on Latin American exports. I think what will be more likely, however, is with the coming in of Joe Biden or the likely coming in of Joe Biden as the next American president may not want to say that too early and jinx it. There will be renewed efforts to try and incorporate Latin America outside of just Mexico into the American um, market, basically. So far, we only have um, the revised NAFTA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement as regards to trade liberalization within the area. And I think it'll be important for the United States to incorporate Brazil, especially in its agricultural business. What's your opinion on the USMCA? I mean, I know Trump has been hating it as a success and a victory. For the United States, I don't really know much. Um, I know that it brings a lot of employment that would have gone to the likes of Mexico, where there it's it's cheaper to get for employment. So how do you think it's benefited Mexico? I think that it's a lot of people, I think Trump has pushed this narrative that it's like this new radical thing. I think it's it's 90% NAFTA. It's mostly just NAFTA with some stuff tacked onto it. That stuff, including increased, increased support for labor unionization in Mexico, but that's up to the discretion of the Mexican government to support and enforce. And they haven't been necessarily great with that on the past. Another thing is the changing of quotas for parts of uh, cards made in the United States versus Mexico. I think 70% of the contents have to have been made in America. Most companies already do meet that requirement. It's just the manufacturing jobs are mostly in Mexico, putting all those contents together. I don't think you'll see a lot of change in this. I think you'll see generally the same kind of conditions in Mexican automotive plants continue to be bad. And what may be interesting is we've, like we've talked about before extensively, as people drop out of the formal economy and the informal sector grows and recently, that may actually have a hit on the automotive industry as well, which is one of Mexico's largest industries and a good chunk of its exports as well. I think that as that grows, you may see auto industries such as Ford, which came there as early as 1925, look at their historical practices and say, how can we incentivize people to come in, which may mean them stepping up their labor protection laws or their labor protection, increasing their wages and generally making it a more enticing workplace to work in. That would benefit US workers by 
making sure that Mexican automotive companies don't drive down wages and have to force U.S. workers to compete at very low wages as well. Uh, right now is probably not the best time considering the Trump administration and in terms of the aid being given to to Latin America. But when we look at other institutions, possibly, um, we've touched upon the UN with the IMF. Obviously, it's a separate entity. However, when we look at European Union. Uh, do you think there are, there are any other that the Latin America and some economies should be looking for more preferential trade agreements at this time? And do you think considering Latin America has been adversely affected and economically uh, in terms of other areas, because of coronavirus, uh, that uh, European Union should maybe renegotiate some of some of its, especially agricultural agreements that are highly quite quite profitable for both, but make it more so that it's preferential for for Latin America. You know, something that's actually pretty interesting is that China has been trying to buddy up to Latin American uh, countries in order to get them on with the Belt and Road Initiative. And so, um, if we want to see China continue to lend bilaterally to these countries, we're going to have to see China try to reach out and help Latin America with its financial woes during this period. And I don't know if we're going to be able to see that happen, but something that's actually uh, moving on to a different topic. And I think DS brought this up earlier slightly, but I might be on a limb here, but the coronavirus has forced a lot of migrant workers in America to you know, lose their jobs or to be forced in horrible living and working conditions. And so we're going to see a lack of remittances to Latin American countries who really do depend on that. And I was wondering how you guys see labor protection laws shifting in the future in order to accommodate these migrant workers and to prevent another crisis like this from happening. Yeah, uh, I think it's very important to recognize that um, Mexico's economy especially is largely reliant on remittances for consumer spending of families within Mexico. I think that labor protection laws may be less important for keeping these people safe as it is just the basic idea of citizenship, making sure that um, undocumented immigrants are citizens so that they can receive any welfare benefits that they may qualify for. To, qual- to get your coronavirus stimulus check, what do you have to do? Well, you have to have a tax filing from 2018 or 2019 with the IRS and a lot of these undocumented workers in the United States obviously don't have those tax filings. So making sure that they're incorporated within our formal economy as well is very important for keeping them safe, basically. I don't quite know how Joe Biden will follow up on the legacy of Barack Obama's DACA um, in regards to that, making sure that we legalize undocumented people within America. However, I can assure you that Donald Trump will likely not take any action towards that, not because he, I think, has a particular stance against deporting or for deporting immigrants necessarily, but I think he would like America to enjoy low wages from undocumented immigrants that would almost amount to slave labor, in my opinion. I think going back to the question I asked before, obviously we've talked about uh, China and the United States uh, in terms of their relationship we've touched upon. NAFTA and obviously it being changed to the US MCA that literally puts the United States first in terms of the naming of it. But I think Trump valued more than the actual what's contained within the trade agreement. The fact that the United States is is literally first in when we read out the name of the trade agreement. But so I was looking at what we touched upon, mentioned already, the two sectors that really make up the Latin American economy, agriculture, mining industry. We've talked about mining. Uh, now, you look at uh, agricultural agreements, the biggest one that Latin America has is with the EU. So I wanted to ask, do you think that 
that America should be advocating for more preferential treaties, so trade agreements at this time, maybe temporarily with the uh, with the with the European Union, giving that it's its biggest trading partner in agriculture. I think that it will be pretty important for Latin America to try and pivot towards other markets other than China in the future. I wasn't actually um, aware that the EU was a large consumer of agriculture within Latin America. As far as I know, the EU in regards to Brazil specifically is actually pretty low on its exports, but the EU has traditionally relied on uh, Asian countries for agricultural inputs and some from the United States. And there is a lot of tension between the EU and the United States currently. And if that can't be recuperated, we may see them looking towards Latin America for some sense of security in terms of imports. The trade war with China within uh, with the United States has kind of signaled to the world that the United States, um, if it continues on this, um, this protectionist trend, may be backing out of the global market. And that concludes this week's podcast on the post-COVID Latin American economy. We have touched about the historic and current state of the economy, how unstable political systems are worsening the economic opportunities of Latin America, the lack of social welfare, positive policy, international trade and investment, touching, touching upon the European Union, China and the United States. Visit thisweekpodcast.org to become a member of This Week for free today. You get access to podcasts where they go live, insights on our guests and priority given to guest applications. If you want to give us some feedback and have any comments or disagree with anything a guest said, send your disagreements and feedback to feedback at thisweekpodcast.org. Thank you to all our guests, VS from the United States, Sophia, Chang, and Riley. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Goodbye.